0: Well, now we're going to look at the very interesting event that took place just before Moses died. There's so much of the last 38 years of the wilderness wanderings where so many things must have happened in that 38 years of which we have no record. We have the rebellion of Korah, the fiery serpents, and that's about it for 38 years. But we do have this, the daughters of Zelophehad, right at the end, just before Moses died. This is an incident that in the mind of God matters an enormous amount. It's very encouraging to sisters because it shows that perception, faith and zeal transcend gender. In this case these five girls achieved dramatic results for themselves, for every orphan daughter in Israel and an inspiration to sisters everywhere to be zealous and perceptive. Now the timing is critical. If you look at chapter 27 and verse 12 to 13 God says to Moses, get up to Mount Abiram, and when you've seen it, you will die. So we're right at the, the, the just before the death of Moses, in, at the end of Numbers 27. At the end of chapter 36, that we just had read to us, you find the same thing. We're right at the stage where Moses is about to die, because Deuteronomy then talks about the death of Moses and so forth. So we're looking at a time just before Moses died. In fact, other than delivering the book of Deuteronomy that he did just before his death, This was the very last issue he had to resolve on two separate occasions before his death. So, again, it's very significantly placed. So, the importance of the story is this it takes up most of Numbers 27, all of Numbers 36, part of Joshua chapter 17, and twice Moses has to deal with this in his very last days. Twice the mind of God is given to us about the participants in the factor, and twice the law of Moses is enlarged. Twice. Now, that's quite a remarkable thing when you think about it, considering the great national issues that were underway, the change of leaders, the war against Midian, the preparation for invasion. This gets an inordinate amount of attention and prominence in the record, because twice God has to speak His mind and twice to change His own law. Now, the key point to notice is in chapter 27 verse 7, and in chapter 36 verse 5, where the approval of God is strong and instant. Chapter 27 verse 7 says. The daughters of Zelophehad speak right, and that's coming from the mouth of the Yahweh angel, because Moses has gone to talk to the Yahweh angel about this. Yahweh spoke to Moses. He brought it before him, went into the tent of meeting, and and the Yahweh angel says, they speak wonderfully. I'm glad to hear them talk like that. In the second incident in Numbers 36, you don't actually read of the confrontation with with, with the angel and with Moses, but Moses comes back with the divine commendation again to the elders of the tribe of Joseph. They have said well. And that is the divine opinion in both cases to the daughters and to the elders of of Joseph. Both of them are commended by God for their part in this matter. So this is this is quite an amazing thing, the significance in God's eyes that he commends all the participants. So two additions are made to the law of Moses, which is something very, very rare. These are the first additions since the law was given at Sinai 40 years before. There's no other amendment or addition that's been made up until this point of time. And now you get the law altered twice. Not altered, but added to. In other words, God now adds another factor to reward these young girls who greatly desired their share of Abraham's land. Give us a possession. And you'll see the word possession goes right alongside of inheritance all the time. Because it regards when you talk about inheritance, that's something you get. Possession is something you get hold of. We're gonna see that in chapter 36. It's something you, I I want a possession. I want to hold it. I want the possession of my father's inheritance. That was their spirit. So their courage to secure it is something we're gonna notice. So let's look at the, go back to chapter 27. Let's look at who these girls were. Now, I'm not a great one for names. Sometimes they can make quite good stories out of them. You can see the names there. I'm not gonna read them all out. These are the names of the daughters of Zalafahad and and their meanings that we can trace. And of Lothar had himself. Um, I'm sure Perce would have made something of these, but you can do what you like with that. Um, There are the names. The word Noah is different to the one in Genesis 6. It's a different Hebrew word, but this one means a wandering person rather than rest, as Noah meant in that that context. So rather than worry about the names too much, look at the fact that we have girls, and this genealogy or this list of five girls is four times in the divine record. You will find no other man in the record, no other man in the whole Bible record, whose children are listed, with the daughters being listed, all of them. It's a remarkable thing when you think about it. There's no other man with all of his children listed, um, and particularly the daughters being listed. But you get all of these, and you get it four times. But they're not all in the same order. And there's an important point in that. Okay, so here are the four girls, five girls. You think of what it took to get the matter escalated to the court of Moses and then to the court of the Yahweh angel. They had to go to the family elders in their own particular family, who would then go to the tribal captains. They would then go to the 70 elders. And finally, they got a front up before Moses, Eliezer, and all the elders. By now, Aaron's already dead. Eliezer is the high priest. So you can imagine how they would have been regarded going through the process of escalating the matter to the feet of Moses. I'm sure there are people in those tribes who would have said, these are pretty forward girls. These are pretty bold girls to push like they did. Now you think about what they were. They were probably only teenagers when this happened. Five of them unmarried. So let's say they were between 16 and 21, or 16 and 22. But at this stage, all unmarried, not very old. Every time Solofhead's mentioned, almost every time, you get the girls attached to him, which is very unusual in the male-orientated genealogies. They changed the whole law of inheritance by their termination. They had to front up on three separate occasions before they got anything. So they had to come back here, Numbers 36 and Joshua 17. They've got to come up again and to talk about this matter. But they had a very correct view of God's words. And that's the important thing about these girls. And we'll see that as we go through. So they had to come three times before they would get their inheritance. So let's come back to Numbers 27 and follow through the first time. So there they are in verse 1, the three girls. They come before Moses in verse 2. And then they make this brilliant statement in verse 3. I want you to notice they were orphans. Their father had died. So what that meant was that there was every chance when they got to the land that that family would not get an inheritance because there was no father of that family left. So they were regarded by God as the fatherless. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 10, there is one of the the most wonderful and the most expansive combinations of the divine name and titles you'll ever find in the Bible. Let's just look at that that Deuteronomy 10 verse 17. For Yahweh your ale is a God of gods, a Lord of lords, A great ale, a mighty, a terrible. And when you're that good, you don't have to respect any human being. He doesn't regard persons. He doesn't say, well, that person's more important than that person. God is so vast and so supreme. He doesn't regard persons. He doesn't, you can't bribe God. But God is a great God of justice. He executes the judgment of the fatherless and the widow. He loveth the stranger. And as I said, Israel were given the first national welfare system the world has ever seen was given to the children of israel the tithes and the offerings and the first fruits all were stored up to be distributed to the poor because god is the father of the fatherless and god feels for people in a vulnerable situation so in god's eyes these daughters were not demanding their rights they had a burning desire to inherit with abraham to share abraham's land give us a possession they say in verse four give us a possession with our brethren with the brethren of our father You know, the margin for verse 4 has that our family be not done away. And the margin's got diminished. You know, we're going to end up having to live on one of our uncle's properties. And we'll just be there in the corner of his his inheritance. And his family will grow and grow and we'll get pushed out to the corner. We want our share of Abraham's land. Why should we miss out just because dad's died? And this is the spirit they have. Now, it's not a demanding spirit. It's a burning desire to inherit with Abraham. And we know that because God says in verse 5, In verse 7, rather, they speak right. Absolutely right. I totally agree with them. You shall surely give them a possession. And there it is. Give them what they really want to hang on to. Give them a possession. And we're going to see in these five girls some wonderful lessons. Now, I want you to notice the issue here in these chapters is inheritance. In Numbers 26, you've got the word inheritance five times at the end of the chapter. In Numbers 27, six times. In Numbers 36, you've got it 17 times. And in Joshua 17, you've got it three times. And the record ends with, in Joshua 17, verse 4, therefore, according to the commandment of Yahweh, he gave them an inheritance among the brethren of their father. You can't miss the theme of inheritance when it comes to these girls. It's about that desire to be part of Abraham's land. And so they were. So, moving on, let's just remember that inheritance matters. Our precious faith and our hope is totally bound up with the glorious future that God offers through the land of Israel, through the people of Israel, and through his son. Our hope is Abraham's hope. Our hope is the promises being fulfilled in Zion. All the promises made to the fathers require resurrection to be fulfilled. Our hope is Abraham's seed ruling over the earth. Our hope is God's house of prayer established in Zion, the bride of Christ completed and Christ being revealed to the world it's our inheritance in Christ and it's far more than being saved from mortality it's being part of the future of Zion the conversion of the world being heirs with Christ and Abraham and in Ephesians it picks that up you know inheritance comes up time and time again in the writings of the Gospels about our status in Christ Jesus we have a right to an inheritance we are heirs according to the promise made unto the fathers But I want you to notice in verse 3 the perceptive comments of these girls and see how much they align with the divine way of thinking. Now, we only have part of what could have been a longer speech recorded, but the two bits God's recorded are clearly evidence of right thinking, of careful listening to God. Now, in that verse 3, it says this, Our father died in the wilderness when he was not in the company of those that gathered themselves together against Yahweh in the company of Korah. Let's just talk about their father. They had a correct view of Korah's rebellion when you go back to number 16 verse 3 the people saw it as a rebellion against moses and it says that the people want to rebel against moses and against aaron god said the rebellion is against me they have rebelled against me and my appointment says god so these girls they said the rebellion that took place with Korah was against yahweh so they're on god's side of thinking about that remember back in number 16 when you know, the earth opened up and the fires come down and destroyed all Korah and his company. What did the people say to Moses? You've killed the people of Yahweh. Did Moses open the earth? No, God did that. God's power was quite obvious. and yet They still said to Moses, you've killed the people of Yahweh. They saw it as a contest between Moses and Korah. But it wasn't. It was between Korah and God. That was the contest. And these girls have got it right. It was a, it was a rebellion against Yahweh. So the point they're making is, Our father was not mixed up in that. He didn't die because of the thousands that died on that day. He was not part of the rebellion. There was no reason our father justly died. But he died because he was mortal. Look at the other comment they make. He died in his own sin and had no sons. So the second thing they've got right is they've got a correct view of human mortality. He wasn't involved in Korah's rebellion. If he had been then we could understand that our family might lose our inheritance because of our father's involvement. Aiken's family suffered that. Our father died in his own sins. He died as all men do. They understood that in Adam, all die, and some would die before their appointed time. But we all die in our own sins sooner or later. But their father's death, leaving only daughters, left them in danger of losing the promised inheritance for their family. I believe their father had hope for this, talked about it with his girls, talked about what they would do when they got their little farm. Somewhere in Israel that they would sit down and set up and how they would organise their farm. And it was part of their faith. And then dad suddenly dies. They didn't know what inheritance they would get. They didn't know where it would be. But they knew they were going to get one. And so they hung on to that with great faith. Now you think how many people had died in the last 40 years of the new generation, not talking about those that were over 20 that came out of Egypt, we're talking about those who were under 20 when they came out of Egypt and those who had been born in the wilderness. You could be 59 and be in that. But think how many fathers had died in those 40 years who were not in the condemned generation, not in the rebellion of Korah, and think how many other families where there were only daughters. But only these girls had come this far to push the matter. They were paving the way for others. Now, God's response was wonderful. They speak right. You know, we would love to have God sometimes commend our perceptions and endorse our words like that. And so six times when God's response, he uses the word inheritance. He uses the word possession on two occasions. Eight times you get inheritance or possession. Then he says at the end of verse 7, Thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them as sons. That's what the Hebrew means. The, The last couple of words in the Hebrew are in the male gender. You shall cause it to pass them as they would for sons. So they're now treated as sons when it comes to the matter of inheritance. So God now lays out new ground rules for inheritance and property succession to what existed before. Now the succession order goes... If there are sons, they inherit from their father. The reason that happens is because if there are daughters and they marry, say, from the tribe of Manasseh into Judah, they become part of the tribe of Judah. And they then share their, their husband's inheritance and stay with his family, and their children stay with the tribe of Judah. So to stay with the same tribe, it's got to go first to the sons. And and, and you know, they then if they bring a wife from somewhere else, then she becomes part of that tribe. So the sons are the ones who inherit first. If there are no sons, now the next people to be considered are the daughters, the orphaned daughters. Then brothers of the father, the uncles get next go, or the next of kin, whatever that happens to be. So it it stays in that family. Somewhere you'll find a male relative. And of course, Boaz was fairly distant to Naomi. He wasn't the nearest of kin, but he was the one in the end who, who did the redemption process. But this was a significant change to property succession in Israel and in the nations of that time. In most other nations, daughters never got to own anything. But now in God's provision, they do. This made Jewish daughters unique amongst all the nations of the ancient world. You might think that's a strange statement, but until about 1960 in the UK, when a woman got married, everything she owned became the property of her husband. That's up until 1960. You know, that's why all those bankrupt, owners of great castles and manors used to marry all these rich American girls because they had the money that they needed to keep their castles going. And, and that's why there was this great trade across the Atlantic of rich girls coming across to marry broken peers, And that was, that was a known thing that happened, um, that they, they would marry girls with money. So, but that's because up in, in Britain, up until 50 or 60 years ago, when a woman married, everything she owned became the property of her husband. And that just shows you how that God's law was actually saying these girls could inherit in their own right, the inheritance of their father. So they got protections. And one thing about the law of Moses I love is the way that God looks after the vulnerability of women. Let me just put up for you a list of things that God has done to protect women in his law. So different to the ancient nations. There's not one clause in God's law that belittles women in any way. Newlywed husbands were exempted from going to war so that the seed could be raised up and the the woman who's probably gone to another tribe or at least to another family is not left on her own because the husband goes off to war and maybe gets killed. There's at least a 12-month respite so that they can actually have the the husband with them in that first 12 months. Honour thy father and mother in the Ten Commandments and in Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, God says, you honour your mother and your father. Totally different to every other code of the ancient world which said, honour your father, honour your brothers, never honour your mother. God's law says you honour your mother and your father in Leviticus 19. Tight regulation of divorce, strong punishment of rape, always the death penalty. There were no repeat offenders. Now in Melbourne you had the Jill Marr case, which some of you will remember. A guy out on parole, convicted rapist, In Israel, there were no repeat offenders for rape. Our enlightened society just lets them out to do the same thing. Handmaids were protected from heavy work. They could not be abused by the power imbalance in the family. They could not be beaten. If they did, they were free to leave. And they always enjoyed the Sabbath to worship with the family. Equal opportunity to donate to the tabernacle. Read Exodus 35. Men and women are voluntarily allowed to donate for the building of the tabernacle. It's it's over and over again, male or female, men or women. Everyone's invited to participate. Women taken captive in war were protected. You know what happens in war in most cases when a country's invaded? Terrible things happen to the women. God's people, Israel, whenever they conquered another nation, they were not allowed to do any of those things. And even if they wanted to make a captive woman to be a bride, they had to think about it for a long, long time and go through a process to make sure they just weren't doing it out of lust. So even captive women were protected by God. Maid servants were included in worship. They were protected from abuse. Everyone had ac- access to the, to the sacrificial code, male or female. Opportunities to work in the temple, the women that served in the temple. Property inheritance for daughters, the orphan daughters. And you go to the Nazarite law equal opportunity to participate as nazarites and at the end of the process to take your hair and put it on the altar with your own hands and you see god is saying that women are equal in salvation there are different roles that god appoints not all men in israel could be priests not all levites could be priests only the family of aaron were appointed by god to be priests God appoints different roles. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to worship, when it comes to the spiritual perception, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Let's get that very clear because that's going to come under challenge more and more in our ecclesial world. There are different roles that God appoints, and it's our peril if we actually challenge what God appoints. Korah and his company found that out. They may have been better priests than Aaron ever was. Who knows? But God had made an appointment. They challenged it, and God did not like it. Let's just bear that in mind when we think about what's happening in our society and even coming to us as Christadelphians. So God loves them for their faith. And so he says in verse 11, If a man's father have no brethren, he shall give his inheritance to his kinsmen, and he shall possess it. It shall be a statute for the children of Israel. Now that's remarkable. Before this day, there were only seven statutes included in the law of Moses. Aaron's family are the priests. That was the first statute. The fat of the sacrifices is Yahweh's. The day of atonement, the showbread, the red heifer, the cities of refuge and the feasts of the new moon. There's your original seven. We now get number eight. Here's a new statute: Orphan daughters inherit equally with, their, with, with sons. And in all of history after this, only one more was ever added. And you can think about what that was. That's just to try and keep you awake after a lovely afternoon tea. Get a bit dozy, don't we? So think about that one. But the matter wasn't finished. So God says, yes, they can inherit. Come across to chapter 36. Now, I want you to notice this was instigated, (coughs) not by the girls, but by the elders of the tribe of Joseph, and particularly of Manasseh, of the family of Gilead, the son of Machia, the son of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And the elders of that family come to Moses with a problem, and the problem's quite simple. They said, look, we accept the decree, it's very good, but our problem is we have a practical issue. If these girls marry into different tribes, that bit of our land becomes part of another tribe. So this tribe of Zebulun will own part of our territory, and some will go to Asher. And if these, girls, if these girls are not just them, but all girls in this position, marry outside their tribe, we're going to start having our inheritance carved up, because it will now belong to somebody over there and some up there, We're going to lose the integrity of our tribal inheritance, and that was their concern. So you notice how much they use the word inheritance between verse 2 and verse 4. It's all about the inheritance being preserved, and if you haven't colored them in through those chapters I gave you, just do so, because it just makes it just jump off the page what the problem is. It's about preserving the inheritance. So... Again, we have the word of God coming back according to the word of God. So I, I would assume from that that Moses has again spoken to the Yahweh angel and he now has a commendation and an instruction. The commendation is at the end of verse 5. The sons, the tribe of the sons of Joseph. Just make a note of that. He didn't say of the family of Gilead or the family of Make here. He said, these are the sons of Joseph. Would you remember that? The tribe of the sons of Joseph hath said well. So... Again, there's a commendation from God for those who are now making the point that we don't want to divide up our inheritance. We don't even have it yet, but we don't want to see it split up. So, again, God loves to hear the confession of those who want to inherit with Abraham. Now, I want you to notice in God's reply, in verse 6, what God says. Here is the thing which Yahweh commands. So, again, this is set down as another part of the statute. They can marry anyone they want but only in their own tribe. Right? And that's the new law. That's the, the next addition to the law. Only in their own tribe. Now ask yourself the question, how come God had to twice add to his own law and didn't foresee this coming? Well, God's not like that. We know that God knows all things. He knows the future. He's very different to our politicians and our lawmakers who are always playing catch-up with policy. You have to respond to unexpected crises that come along. Oh, we're having an inquiry into that, or I've instituted a review. I'm going to get a report about that. I've set up a committee, and I'm amending defective legislation because we got it wrong the first time. That's how the world always messes up with its policies. But God doesn't omit things. God doesn't not know that these things were going to come up. He could have given a decree earlier about this in the law. He could have given the whole package in Numbers 27. Why did he wait till now? You see, God knew that they had to think about their inheritance. What would the elders of Manasseh do once they heard the first decision? Immediately merely put their hand up. Hey, hang on, hang on. What about our tribal inheritance? And you see, God loved to see that in them as well. He loved the daughters of Zelophehad and he loved them for wanting to preserve the inheritance of their tribe. Both of them said the right thing, says God. And we need to tell God the desires of our heart. God will give you, says Psalm 37 verse 4, the desires of your heart. And both of them had expressed that and God had rewarded both of them. Now I want you to notice in God's little speech here that Moses reports, the three things about the inheritance that God says through Moses are important. In verse 7, so shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Now look at the margin, shall cleave. It's the word used in the Bible for marriage. He shall cleave, connected to his inheritance of his fathers. He's married to God's land. You might want to note Isaiah 62, thy land shall be called married, says Isaiah 62, verse 4. So there's the commitment. So the commitment to the inheritance is the number one issue. Then in the end of verse 8, that the children of Israel may enjoy every man, the inheritance of his fathers. And there's happiness and fulfillment in being part of that inheritance. But you have gotta look after it, you have gotta protect it. You have gotta make sure the landmarks don't get removed. You have gotta make sure that the wild animals don't decimate it. And so it says in the end of verse nine, the children of Israel shall keep himself to his own inheritance. And that means protect and maintain it. And we have to do the same three things with our inheritance, brethren and sisters. We've got to join ourselves to it like the glue of being married to it. We enjoy it. We enjoy the company of like precious faith with our other members. And we keep it by protecting it. That's what God wants to see in his children. So remarkably, that was the second change to the law, the second addition to the law. God waited for them to express their faith and their hope of possession before he changed that law twice. And he added to it to make it more clear what he intended them to do. But he waited for them to ask. So verse 10 and 11 is, is a brilliant case of where well, we need to do careful Bible reading. Even as Yahweh commanded Moses, so did the daughters of Zelophehad. For Malah, Terza, Hoglar, and Milcar, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married unto their fathers, brothers, sons. It doesn't mean necessarily cousins. They married into the family of their father's tribe. Now, this is where your careful Bible reading comes in. There's four lists of the daughters of Salaf had on the record. This is the only one, the order of the girls is different. Number two and number five are swap places. Why do you think that might be? Well, let me make a suggestion. I think it's the order which they got married in. Sometimes younger ones do get ahead of their older sisters, but when they went out and found husbands, which was quite a number of years later, by the way, because they waited until they were given the inheritance seven years later before they got married, and they married in their own tribe. So by that stage, it would all have been in their 20s, and it, I think the change of order just reflects the fact that maybe this is the order they actually got married in. Something to do is to think about. But they willingly obeyed God's decree, and they secured the tribal inheritance from being split up by marrying into different tribes. Now, you can make a note against that where it says... At the end of they were married to their father's brother's sons there's a couple of examples through the bible of this happening first of chronicles 23 verse 22 something happens amongst the levite families using this law that's first of chronicles 23 verse 22. ruth and boaz is a similar case the really critical one is the case of mary the mother of the lord i believe she was an orphan you say that because number one she was living in relative poverty there's no mention of her parents ever being involved in what was very a very traumatic situation for a young woman in Israel, to be found with child. She had no mother to go to, she went straight to Elizabeth when she was told the news, who was perhaps one of her nearest relatives. And the difference is that when she gets to that house, she enters the house of Zacharias and salutes Elizabeth. But it's nominated as Zacharias's house. When she goes home, she goes home to her own house, and she is marrying. In the same tribe, the tribe of Judah, but she doesn't live in Judah. She's right up there in Galilee, in the poor part that was regarded as the slums of Israel. And she's marrying a man who's of the tribe of Judah. So I think she was an orphan fulfilling this law. Now what's important about that? Well, what's important about that is by marrying Joseph whom Luke tells us in Luke 3.23, becomes the legal inheritor of Heli, Mary's father. So the inheritance of Heli, Mary's father, now goes to to the hands of Joseph. But also by Mary marrying Joseph, Jesus inherits the line of the kingship to the Davidic kings. Mary's line does not go back through the kings of Israel. It's Joseph's line that does. And legally... Now, Joseph marrying Mary becomes the the legal father of, of Jesus in the worldly sense. Jesus inherits the kingship through Joseph. And you see, it was very much in God's plan that Mary should have to marry somebody in her own tribe, and particularly that man. So interesting, isn't it? This law had eternal ramifications. Now, I want you to come to Joshua 17 and see the end of the matter because they have to come back again to get this matter finally resolved. Seven years later, all organised Canaanite resistance has been now put down. So all the armies of Canaan have been eliminated. It's up to the Jews now to go out and to take their individual inheritances. So chapter 15, 16, all the divisions of the inheritances are made by tribes. And Joshua is now dividing up the land. This dividing, by the way, went on for about 40 years. And I'll show that to you in the, in the last study. But the dividing went on for a long time because it took a long time for some of these areas to be conquered. Some of them weren't conquered to the days of Solomon. The Jews were very slack in getting rid of the Canaanites. But they were dividing the land into tribes initially. And then the tribes would have a division into families and then into fathers of families and so forth. It would go on down through time. And as they took more land, they would divide up further that land. And it was by God's choice what part of land you got. So come to Joshua 17. And this is, again, we need to very carefully read our Bibles. There was a lot for the tribe of Manasseh. So this is the tribe of Zelophehad. But he was the firstborn of Joseph. So Joseph got a double portion. You got Manasseh and Ephraim get the biggest parts of the dividing of the land. So Joseph gets a double portion as the firstborn by right not by birth. For Makia, the son of Manasseh, the first one of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, he was a man of war. He was given Gilead and Bashan. So the family of Makia, who was the grandson of Manasseh, he's given Gilead and Bashan. So over there on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, up in the mountains of of Bashan, the territory of Og, uh, the king of Bashan, that's given to to the family of Gilead or Makia. There was also a lot for the rest of the children, of Manasseh, in verse 2, by their families. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this. They come to claim their inheritance. Now, there are six sons of Manasseh. Let me just give them to you. They're they're in verse 2, but let me just put them down for you. There are six sons of Manasseh. Makir, Ashriel, Shechem, Helix, Shemadiah, and Abiezah. Makir is the father of Gilead. Gilead had four sons. Three of those sons of Gilead inherit Bashan on the east of Jordan. The fourth son of Gilead, Hepher, is the father of Zelophehad. And he doesn't inherit Gilead and Bashan. Okay? Something else is provided for him. So when you look at the tribe of Manasseh, where it actually lay in the land, look at the size of the inheritance of Manasseh. East and west of Jordan, huge territory given to Manasseh. This is the double portion of Joseph. You add that to Ephraim, it looks pretty good, doesn't it? But over here, you've got Bashan, the north part of that, and right across in the mountainous country was what Gilead got. So, all of that on the east there was Gilead and was the three sons of Gilead. The fourth son of Gilead, his, his inheritance is on the other side. Now, just bear in mind, there are six sons of Manasseh. So, you've got is looked after. So, you've got five more sons, plus Hepha doesn't get anything on the east. So you with me so far? Got that? No, this is complicated. Let's read what it says. But verse three But Zoloph had the son of Hepha, the son of Gilead, the son of Mecca, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but daughters. And then it lists them off again in the correct order. They came near before Eliezer, before Joshua the son of Nun, before the princes, saying, Yahweh commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brethren. Therefore, according to the commandment of Yahweh, he gave them an inheritance among the brethren of their father. So these girls are going to get an inheritance. And here's where you need to carefully read the Bible. How many sons of Manasseh have not inherited so far? Five. Look what the record says in verse verse 5. And there fell ten portions to Manasseh beside the land of Gilead and Bashan on the other side of Jordan. So We're now talking about the western inheritance over there on that side of Jordan. That's divided into ten. Because there are five sons who have not got any inheritance. And they are the daughters of Zelophehad. You think that's reading too much? Read the next verse, verse 6. Because the daughters of Manasseh. Are they daughters of Manasseh? They're daughters of Zelophehad, aren't they? They have now been elevated to be sons of Manasseh. They are here alongside the other five sons. You've now got ten portions because these girls are now called by God daughters of Manasseh. See, we can read our Bible for years and miss things like that. God says they're daughters of Manasseh. I've brought them up three generations, four generations up. Here they are, Zalophahed, Hepha, Maki, Gilead. (coughs) Up they come, four generations. And they're direct children of Manasseh, says God. So I'm going to appoint ten portions in the west, Five for the other sons, and five for these girls. You can imagine, if they'd been allowed to marry into other tribes, what Manasseh would have looked like after that. You know, 25% of their territory would be gone to other tribes. So they're called daughters of Manasseh, by God. The rest of his sons had the land of Gilead, which, of course, was the family of Maki. So it's a remarkable thing. They got a very special inheritance no wonder there was concern about who they would marry. A remarkable thing. But more than that, I want you to notice that they were called, back in both chapters of Numbers, the families of Joseph. The families of Joseph. Here they're called the daughters of Manasseh. And of course, Manasseh's father was Joseph. So they're very much related to Joseph. Now, there's a little prophecy in. Genesis 49, that says this. Joseph is a fruitful bough This is the blessing of Jacob upon Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough Even a fruitful branch planted by a well. So this is a, a, a tree that is growing by a well. It's got its roots in the, in the divine things of God, in the waters of life. And it says in the AV, whose branches run over a wall. But in the margin, the translator said, look, we don't get it. This word, branches, we put in there, it's actually the word daughters in the Hebrew. So here the prophecy of Jacob says Joseph is going to have daughters that actually go far beyond what they could go by. And that's these girls. They're going to become children of Manasseh. They're going to go over the wall. They're going to get more than you would expect them to have get. They've been raised four generations to inherit with the other sons of Manasseh. You know, their portions, we don't know the size of any of the portions that were allocated, but they were certainly going to be important portions. Where do you think they might have inherited? In the western side of Manasseh. Well, I believe certainly Shechem, of all places. Quite remarkable, isn't it? The daughters of Joseph will run over the wall. They also laid the foundation for a New Testament law about marriage. You know this one from 1 Corinthians. You know, Paul talking about the duties of christadelphians in marriage a widow he said can marry whosoever she will isn't that exactly what was said back there let them marry whoever they think best so they can make their own choice you're not limited to talking to, talk to somebody god there was no necessarily arranged marriage they could marry anybody they like but it's got to be in your own tribe and that's what paul is saying you've got to marry in the faith you're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers and i believe that's based upon the daughters of Zelophehad. And our inheritance is God's truth. Our inheritance is God's ecclesia, the godly seed. By God's mercy, we are the light of this world, his witnesses. We don't so much have territory yet, but we have the hope of Israel. We have divine thinking. We have the promises revealed to us. And it's hard enough to raise a godly seed in a united family. So much harder if we're unequally yoked together and marriage out of the truth will divide, will diminish God's heritage, and sadly it's happening more than it should. And even more sadly, more and more ecclesias are unsure what to do about it. Can I say at the same time we must honour, include, and respect those who have chosen for the truth's sake to remain single, to value the commitment to the truth. You know, in my last study I omitted to say that amongst the saints, there will be many people who never had the chance to have children, either because they didn't marry or they didn't have children. There's gonna be a lot of children, children of the saints that God regards as his children. He calls them that, his children, my children, the holy seed, as God calls them. Your children are holy, he said, even when a sister's married to somebody out of the truth. And there are gonna be children that God holds in regard And maybe we'll give a place in the kingdom as mortals who are going to need new parents, new guides to bring them through those formative years. And maybe that's how God will reward those who are childless in this age. But let's value and honour those who remain single and value the commitment to the things of God. So what are the lessons we take from the daughters of Zelophehad? Well, let's take the one about marrying first. Sometimes the truth, as we know it, requires us to limit our personal options for the greater good. Our personal preferences and our liberties are subject to the good of others. They could have complained of the limitations that God imposed upon their choice of partners, but they waited for seven years until the fighting was over and then they married in their tribe. And because of their faith and obedience God gave them vast portions in the inheritance of the sons of Manasseh. Secondly, let us grasp the inheritance which has been promised to us. They hadn't got any of it at this stage. They didn't know where it would be until Joshua 17. We've got a pretty good idea what God has in store for us, but we have to grab hold of it and hang on to it. Keep it and enjoy it. And we can't sell it for a mess of pottage. Remember Naboth. Naboth god forbid that i should sell my inheritance i can't do that and where did naboth live in the tribe of manasseh he knew what inheritance was all about we just can't give in and forsake the inheritance that god has preserved for us it is good pleasure to give us the kingdom to inherit with abraham and thirdly god loves us to express our desires and our hopes to ask again and again for the promises to be fulfilled. Let's plead with him that we might inherit with Abraham. Let the hope of Israel be a part of our prayers. And I've been a bit saddened in recent years, then as more and more younger brethren are coming through, and some of them give lovely prayers, very sincere prayers. But I'm finding that the hope of Israel is disappearing. And we need to really include that, brethren. I'll tell you to the younger brethren, think about our hope, our connection to Zion. <coughs> and we have to seize our inheritance and keep our inheritance. You know, Caleb was an example of grabbing an inheritance. Give me this mountain, he said to Joshua. I want the place where the giants were. And they gave it to him. Aksar said, give me a blessing. And, he was, and she was given the upper and the nether springs. And of course, we know that Naboth kept his inheritance. We're going to look at Jabez later on, who also was given more inheritance than he originally got. Give me, give me, give me. It's not about selfishness. It says, I want to be part of Abraham's future. I want to be there with Christ. (coughs) And so we wait for our inheritance, brethren and sisters, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, God will grant eternal life. It's not a selfish thing. We want to be there because we want to be able to praise our Heavenly Father, to thank our Heavenly Father, to glorify His name by spreading the knowledge we have to other people. The ambition to be there is a good thing, not a selfish thing. We want to glorify God forever. So let us emulate the faith, the courage, and the determination of these five wise virgins. Because Jesus says to us, He that overcometh shall inherit all things.